0: So good morning everyone. I'm Paul Glaju. I'm the director for the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine and I'm a part-time general practitioner as well. I work down at Beaumont Street opposite the Ashmolean Museum, a very privileged place to work. Um, I'm glad you all managed to make it through the snow to get here. Um, I think we've had uh, most people turn up so that's great news. Um, I'm sorry we're a little bit late but a few people did have difficulty coming in. Um, I'm going to talk in a moment about an introduction to evidence-based medicine, but just a couple of little practicalities before we start. You should all have a pack, which has two components. There's a workbook and there's a set of readings. You've all got those. The other really important thing is you should should have got a list of the group that you're in. And there'll be a room on it that you'll have to find. That's your first task after this lecture is to find your room. That's the room that you'll be in for the entire three days. Most of this workshop is about getting you guys to do things, to get um, practice, hands-on work at critical appraisal, searching, etc., to develop the skills in this area. We'll talk at you a little bit, but that's mostly for orientation to different areas. Most of the real work is you actually practicing things. So find out where that room is, because that's the place where you'll do the, the real work. And we'll get you there straight after this lecture. The other thing is that you were sent out a program um, and you some of you managed, probably brought along with you. Um, there's a couple of small modifications to that um, and they're printing those off at the moment. So before we finish this session, we'll get you a new copy of the program as well with those couple of small modifications. Okay. I'm going to talk about the basics of evidence-based practice. And in a sense, I'm going to talk about two things One is about um, the sort of skills that you need, the process, the traditional four steps of evidence-based medicine about formulating questions, searching skills, um, appraising the evidence and applying it to individual patients. And in particular, I want to talk about the formulation of questions this morning. But the other thing we're trying to get you to learn is about some of the practicalities. How does this work in practice? That's where I'd actually like to start this morning, is to give you a sort of snapshot of When you go back to wherever you're working, how would this look when you're actually doing it? So there's a set of skills that you need, but there's also a set of processes that you need to learn about. How would you put this into practice? And I want to give you a picture, so I'm actually, in a sense, going to start at the end. Before I do that, though, I want to know why you're here. And you'll do this in your small groups. We'll start with asking you what you want to get out of this process because it's not a completely fixed program for this, particularly in the small group sessions. In a sense, you can make up your own workshop, at least persuade your tutor to modify, to fit your needs. But I want to know a sort of big picture thing first of all, and I want to find out why you're here. You're here to learn EBM because, and it can be all five if you like, but I'd like you to put your hand up for each one that you think you're here for. So here's, who's here primarily because they're working in clinical practice and they want to use this in clinical practice? Hands up. Okay, that's about half of you. That's great. Here because you're working on evidence resources such as reviews, guidelines, evidence reports, those sorts of things. Okay, it's probably about a third of you and some doubling up, obviously. Here because you want to help others use evidence. You're... Okay. Here because you plan to teach EBM. My goodness, quite a lot of you. That's great. (laughs) And here because your boss said you had to come? (laughs) Okay, that's a few of you too. I noticed some people from the centre put up their hands too. I didn't tell you you had to come. So, just to orient you, what we're going to do now is. I'm going to talk, as I said, about the basics of evidence-based practice. Then you'll go to your small group room, the important thing you've got to find after this session, and we'll have a tutorial about uh, about the question formulation component. Then we'll have Morning Tea come back and um, Raphael's going to do a session on rapid critical appraisal where we'll teach you the basic, our simplified version of critical appraisal based on Rod Jackson's GATE process. And there are just two acronyms you have to learn, and that's PICO and RAMBO. We'll teach you those two acronyms. If you know those, you know about two-thirds of what you need to know about EBN. Then in the afternoon after after lunch, we'll be sending you off to um, a computer lab um, about 100 yards down the road here so that you can do some hands-on searching. We'll have got you to formulate some questions before that, hopefully, but we'll have um, one of the librarians teach you about hands-on searching and then you'll have your final session this afternoon. That's a relatively fixed program with some flexibility in it. The two days following it, tomorrow and and Wednesday, actually the program is much more flexible. And so part of what you'll need to do today in your small groups is just decide which bits you want to emphasize, which bits do you need to know more about that and discuss that with your tutor. Okay, what I'm going to talk about in this session is two things, as I said. One is, what is evidence-based medicine? What does it look like in practice? So I want to give you some sort of picture of that and then I'm going to talk about mostly about the first of those four steps, about the formulation of questions and the different styles of question that you can have and what research would fit them best. Okay, in order to warm up for this, what I'd like you to do is you should all have a sheet that doesn't have my full set of slides on it, but it's got the critical ones. On the back of that sheet is a set of changes in practice. What I'd like, I'm going to give you about 103 seconds to write on that things that you have changed in your practice, whatever your practice is. So what things have you changed in the last 12 months? And then I'd like you to think, okay, how did that change come about? Where did you learn it from and what was the evidence behind it? Okay, I can see many of you racking your brains to think of more. I'm sure if I gave you a longer period, uh, you'd actually think of many more. But I just want to get some sense of how many changes people have made over the last 12 months. Anyone with more than 10? Hands up. Between 6 and 10? Okay, let's do the countdown. 5. That's 2. 2. Four. One, two, three, four, five, six. Three. That's about ten. Two. That's about ten. One. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Zero. Okay. So that looks like somewhere between two and three is the most common number of changes. Now, I put that up for a couple of reasons. Um, One is just to illustrate that we feel like we've been, that there's a lot of information coming through and that we're reading lots of stuff. But actually, the number of changes that we make in practice is, is actually fairly small. And what we'd like to do is actually make your life easier by trying to find more things that actually change your practice, that influence patient care, but without increasing and maybe even decreasing the amount of work you need to do to do that. Okay, so we'd like to get these numbers up more towards this end of things. So next year when you come back and answer this question, again, you can probably write down 10, but you've actually been reading less. The other thing I'd like to ask you, though, is what drove those changes? Maybe you want to discuss this for a moment with your neighbour, but can I just ask how many, how many people had a change that was driven by a systematic review of randomised trials? <coughs> Nobody? Nobody? Not that they could remember anyway, okay. So you just want to confer with your neighbour about what your changes were and where did they come from. Okay, can I have your attention again? I can see we're going to have no problem getting you guys to work in tutorials. That's fantastic. (laughs) You're a talkative bunch. Can I just ask um, for examples of of where you learnt things from? What sorts of places did you actually get the learnings from that changed your practice? Sorry? I'm embarrassed to say it's not EBM. No, no, no. So please, please be truthful. I'm not expecting you to say, "Oh, you read the EBM journal, and you're really." <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you don't have to say that. Example. Like, uh, so it was a team yeah. that so you learnt it from. from the <laughs> it. Sorry. Yeah, regulations from above. Regulations from above. So it was a guideline that you read that said, "This is what you've got to do." Yours is from a team. From research. From. This is your own research, is it? No, it's not my own, it's Okay, so you read research. So that's an EBM process. Fantastic. But I, I, there's a variety of means, isn't there? You may get a directive from, uh, from the National Institute for Clinical Excellence or some guideline from colleagues. Anyone else have something different? Yeah? From my boss. I'm a surgical background Okay. So your boss said, no, you've got to do it this way or there's this new way of doing things. Anyone else? From a course. Okay, so you went to a session specifically to learn about something. You went, oh, that's a good idea. I'll do that in practice. From discussion with colleagues. Okay, discussion with colleagues. Just sitting around the tea room or something. Or saying, I have this problem. Now having a, meeting, a meeting, like Journal Club uh-huh. discussing what, what we have evidence support our practice. Okay, fantastic. Email Sorry? I have, an email group. We have an email group. An email group, and yeah. someone sent in a response, and you thought, oh, that's. No. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Any other? From reflection on your own practice. From reflection on your. Okay, just thinking about it. Oh, okay. okay. I should probably do that differently. Person's mental experience. Hmm. 피- okay. Experience. Sorry. Anyone? Anyone else? Audit. Project. Audit. 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 Aud- audit. audit. Okay. You did an audit. Th- oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay. Anyone? Yes. Sorry. Experts in the field. Ex- so personal okay. communication with them. You went to a lecture, or you were talking to them in the corridor, or something. Okay. Anyone get it from a patient? Yes. yes. The Daily Mail. The Daily Mail. Okay. The ki- the media as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what was the one from the? Do you remember one from the media? One one recent one for us was the example of the antidepressants, which hit the the media a couple of weeks ago. There'd been a recent systematic review in PLOS Medicine um, based on FDA-submitted data. It's one we actually did in our own journal club because we expected patients to come in asking about that. So we wanted to look at the paper. Okay, great. So I wanted to illustrate that, first of all, we don't make a lot of changes, and actually at the moment they come from a variety of sources... How many of those do you think were explicitly evidence-based? That is, that you knew what the evidence was, that, the, that somebody was suggesting a change to you and you knew what their evidence was. Hands up who had a, an... Inst- they felt pretty secure about the evidence. So mostly not. Okay. No, I'm, I think we should be honest about this. We do learn things from a variety of places. Sometimes we're in a hurry and we just ask a colleague, what would you do about this? And you go, oh, that sounds pretty good. I'll go and do that. And we have to recognise that's where our changes come from. The one thing I'd suggest is, okay, if you think this is going to be something I'm, a problem I'm going to come across repeatedly, maybe you want to think, maybe I should check the evidence on that as well. Ask them, but maybe do a search yourself. Okay, so a few interesting learnings from that. I want to contrast that with our feeling of huge amounts of information coming in. So I'm going to assess your JASPER score, which has five components to it. Do you feel ambivalent about renewing your journal subscriptions? Do you feel anger towards prolific authors like me? Do you ever use journals to help you sleep? Are you surrounded by piles of periodicals? Do you feel anxious when journals arrive? You get one point for each yes that you make to that. I want you to add up your score from zero to five. How many yeses? Okay, hands up the zeros. One to three? Four or five? Okay, you're a pretty normal sort of audience then. (laughs) I've done some standardization. (laughs) And it's good to see we have no liars in the group. Most of you are in what's called the normal range. That may not be the healthy range though. Okay, but it... But it is said to be the normal range and a few of you are in trouble and need to go and see an information specialist. Okay, why do we feel that way? One is just the amount of research that's being published and it can come through to a, for a variety of means. Um, this is just one illustration of the number of medical articles being published per year. And actually, this is slightly out of date. Medline is now over half a million per year. I think last year it was about 600,000. Articles And MEDLINE, of course, is very restrictive. It's just part of the world literature, which is probably more like a couple of million articles per year. And even if you just wanted to confine yourself to the randomized trials, there are about 30,000 randomized trials being published every year as well. Um, so the, the title of this comes from one of the few practical <coughs> books I read going through medicine called as Few Patients as Possible. by Oscar London, and Rule 31 was review the world literature fortnightly, (laughs) which turns out to be a pretty tough task. In fact, if you put it just in daily terms, we're talking about 55 trials per day, 1,500 Medline articles per day, and probably about 5,000 biomedical um, articles per day. The literature is huge, and trying to find your way through that is very difficult. Even though you may have a narrow specialty area that you're working in, often that literature is really scattered. It may, Some of it will be, maybe about a third of it, in, your, in, your, in all the specialty journals. But then another third of it will be in general medical journals. In fact, the, the big stuff will probably be in the major general medical journals, even if it's a specialty topic. So even specialists have to read their own subspecialty journals plus all the general medical literature, The remaining third will be scattered across a huge um, array of of different areas. So it's very difficult to find. Okay, so the key problem that evidence-based medicine addresses is the the issue of trying to sift out the best evidence that's coming out through research and using it to improve our patient care, to change the way that we (coughs) practice. And it's, there isn't one solution to this problem, and we may invent new solutions during this workshop. This is a, a, an evolving science, if you like. So there isn't one magic answer to this. But the definition is evidence-based medicine is the integration of best research evidence with clinical expertise and patient values. And for us, two of those in motherhood, we wouldn't expect to do this without clinical expertise. We wouldn't expect to do it without involving the patient in the decision-making process in some way and finding out what their objectives are and what they want. And the magic ingredient that we'd like to add, the extra thing that EBM wants, is to add the best research evidence. And patients, if you tell them that we don't do that at the moment, are really surprised. You try and explain evidence-based medicine to patients, and they go, you mean you aren't doing that already? You mean you don't use the best research evidence when you make decisions about me? And we go, well, that's almost impossible on the other side of it. EBM is the sort of trying to get those, the nexus between those three things. What I want to do is just talk about a couple of models of how this might look, the practicality. What would it look like if you were going to do this in practice? And I'm, beginna, I'm going to begin with the impossible version of it, so bear that in mind. This is the impossible version of it, which is why I have the, um, the rings down the bottom here. I'm going to talk about the Olympic champions of evidence-based medicine. Dave Sackett was the founder of the Centre for Evidence Based Medicine, and when he was here in the 1990s, he was um, an internal medicine physician working up at the John Radcliffe Hospital. And on the ward rounds, they used to take a thing called the evidence cart, which had a, a data projector and a laptop computer, and on the laptop they had Medline, the, the beginnings of the Cochrane Library, best evidence, which was the, all the things from the ACP Journal Club, um, etc. Things that they'd previously appraised, and they're all set up on the laptop. And during the ward round, they would ask questions. Go, gee, I wonder if we should use X or Y. Should we give this patient with heart failure a beta blocker? What dose should we use, etc.? And they would look that up during the ward round. They'd look up two or three questions per patient. It took about 15 to 90 seconds, and I'll show you the data in a moment, to find the piece of evidence that they needed to answer that question, and it changed about one-third of their decisions. So most, in most patients, they were actually making a, a, some decisional change every patient that they were seeing. Okay, and you think, that's impossible, isn't it? Well, one fact is that the ward rounds took a little bit longer. <laughs> is Carl here? No, he's actually gone. Carl was a medical student during this, so he actually experienced some of these ward rounds. <coughs> I, I hear rumours that the ward rounds could take anything up to five hours, Carl. Yeah, you couldn't actually fit all in one leg. There was that many people who had to down clothes in two legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you may say this is, this is not feasible and, <coughs> and not possible. So two caveats that I'll make about that. One is that most people do several hours of continuing medical education per week. When I've assessed this in workshops, most people on average are doing that three hours a week when you add up all the journal reading, the lectures that you go to, etc. If you put it all together, it's about three hours per week. What Sackett was doing was moving that three hours of continuing medical education and putting it, adding it into the ward round. So the ward round was lengthened because that's where he was going to put the continuing medical education, where it was going to be most effective with individual patient care. They were learning on the fly, just-in-time learning, which is what I put up the top here. sort of different approach to education. The other thing is being able to answer things that quickly. I don't even expect you to do that at the end of this workshop, right? Sackett had been doing this for 20 years by the time he got here and, and Sharon Strauss. And that's why I say these are the Olympic champions. At the end of this workshop, you might be able to find the best piece of evidence for something in maybe 15 minutes. But the first time can take an hour to do and you get progressively faster at it. One thing you'll learn is that try, finding no evidence, when there's no evidence there, it actually takes you longer because you're never sure, have I exhausted all possible search terms? So learning when to stop is actually a difficult thing as well. But it takes a while, lots of practice, hundreds of questions before you can get down to this sort of pace of being able to find the information, of realising where to search and what the search term should be, and then being able to appraise it rapidly as well. That just takes time and practice, and I don't expect you to start there. This, by the way, is the data. When they looked up previously appraised topics, it took them about 15 seconds. If they used the back issues of the EBM Journal and ACP Journal Club, it took them about um, 30 seconds. And going to Medline took them about 90 seconds on average. Sharon Strauss, who was his registrar at the time, um, took took the data. Okay. So I'm going to suggest instead that what we're aiming to learn here is three other practical things that you may be able to do. And these are the suggestions that I'd make. One is to read some sort of evidence-based journal, some practical journal, such as for primary care and internal medicine there's the EBM journal, the ACP journal club, there's evidence-based nursing, evidence-based mental health, um, evidence-based child health I think has just come out So there are a series of abstraction services and it's useful to read those rather than trying to keep up with the literature yourself, get somebody else to do it for you. Define the best things. This is the sort of alerting service and that's what we might call push. What are the new things I need to know? The other is your own questions, the things that arise out of practice that you're going to go and ask somebody about. And what we suggest is you just keep a logbook of those and we'll give you out a logbook. Carl, you've got them there? Do you want to hand them out now? So we'll give you out a little logbook that you can keep in practice of your own questions. You don't have to be ambitious here. Remember, you've probably made only less than 10 changes in the year. If you could make answer one question a week and every second week make a change, you'd actually at least double the number of changes you're making. Okay, so don't be too ambitious here. Start off with an aim of answering one question per week would be sufficient. Okay, and the other thing to do is to share this. Both things can feed into a team-based discussion. Let's talk about this as a practice for half an hour a week or an hour a week if you can spare it. Shifting the sort of... Don't do more stuff, but change the way you do your continuing medical education to run a case-focused journal club using EBM materials. So three suggestions... There are probably others, and as I say, this is an evolving thing. We don't know the best way of doing evidence-based practice, but we know there's a lot of good research out there that isn't being used in practice, and we're trying to work out how to bridge that gap. And if you guys come up with other ways, we'd love to share them during this workshop or after the workshop. So these are just three suggestions. I'm just going to show you one slide on each of those to tell you how they work. The process for the EBM journal is that we scan about 120 um, journals, including the major general medical journals such as JAMA, Lancet, BMJ, etc., and check the 60,000 articles in those to see whether they they pass some simple validity criteria. If it's therapy, then it should be a randomised trial with at least 80% follow-up. If it's a prognostic question, though, we just want what's called an inception cohort and you'll go through all of these study types in your, in your um, workshop. Okay, about 5% of the material passes that. So that filters out 95% of it. So the number needed to read to find one valid article is about 20. Then we ask, is it relevant? We get various people to say, would this change your practice? Is it newsworthy? Is it relevant? Is it going to be a major change in practice? And we actually select a much smaller percentage then. So the number needed to read there is about 200 in order to get one relevant and valid article. There's a message about that for journal clubs, by the way. If you're running a journal club, if you just haphazardly search the literature and then appraise it at the journal club, mostly you'll come up with things that you trash and don't change your practice using. And it gets very disappointing then to run the journal club and every time you just trash the article and say, we're not going to change our practice on the basis of that. Actually, at Journal Club, you'd like to get down to these, mostly the things that are going to change your practice, the positive hits, so that each time you do Journal Club, you're actually learning about what practice changes should make. Mostly. Sometimes it'll be something where there's pressure on you to change, but when you look at the article, you say, well, actually, the evidence for that's pretty weak. We're not going to go with that fashion. So that's one thing. The second thing is just to keep a simple logbook of questions like the one you've got, It's spiral bound so you can keep it open on your desk. Use it any way you like. Answer a couple of important questions. You can discuss the evidence with colleagues in a journal club. You don't have to do a search. Maybe you should ask somebody but also do a search and compare the two. What did my best colleagues tell me compared with what Medline came up with? Use it in all sorts of ways. But start out with just not trying to record every question because that will be too much. But aim to answer one important question a week. Okay, and the final thing is to run an EBM journal club. These should be fun. One of the principles is to have fun and to have food. This is my one at Beaumont Street. Um, You probably can't pick it here, but this is actually a blind tasting of different types of margarines and butters. (laughs) So they're labelled with a post-it note here to say which ones they coded so we could break (coughs) the code afterwards because we're interested in the cholesterol-lowering margarines. Did they taste any different? (laughs) Okay, so it's a bit of fun as well. We've had yoghurt tastings and all sorts of things, demonstrations of the Epley Maneuver. We do all sorts of things at the journal club. And these are some of the questions that we've done. Um, antidepressants in adolescents, a tenolol for hypertension, etc. Um, and I've bolded the ones that have actually come from the EBM journal. So what we do is when the EBM journal comes out, I get people to vote on which things they want to look at in the journal club, which are the practice-changing things. So that's the sort of push side of things, things that we've been alerted to. The others were specific questions that came up in practice because a patient had alerted us to it, and we wanted to discuss that, and we did the search and found the evidence. And you can see that there's actually a mix of the two. We use both for these discussions. Sometimes it's driven by a patient question. Sometimes it's driven because new evidence has come along about our combined inhalers, better for asthma, or pelvic floor exercises for erectile dysfunction which you probably never would have thought of as a question. But you say, well, this is an important problem in, for us in primary care. Let's actually learn about that. Okay. It's useful in the journal clubs, as you'll have in the little room, to have um, some tools like a, a flip chart, a whiteboard where we used to keep our questions. We now keep them on an intranet. Some good sources of evidence and plenty of coffee to wake people like this up. Okay. Okay, I'm going to move on to part two. I said I talked to you a little bit about the skills, and I'm going to talk to you particularly about the formulating the question, but these are the the usual four steps of EBM. This is all in your workbooks, in the the book that you've got, so you don't need to take notes. But this is the skill part here, and um, I give you the example of a stethoscope um, as a sort of illustration of the amount of work that it takes. I think to learn the process of critical appraisal, it's a bit like learning to use a stethoscope. Um, you actually need a bit of practice to, um, to actually be able to hear the heart sounds even and then for the abnormalities. And um, one clinician was telling me the other day it wasn't until his second year as a registrar that he actually heard his first, third heart sound. So it's a skill you'll gradually develop. You might have to fake it at first. <laughs> like he'd obviously done for many years, saying, oh, yes, I can hear that third heart sound. Okay. So let's just talk about formulating answerable questions. The big messages are that there are different types of questions. We need to be able to structure them with a PICO. Can I ask who's heard of PICO before? Okay, who's heard of variants of PICO, so Po questions, for example? Okay, a few people. So let me go through them. <clears throat> PICO is a very useful way of breaking down the questions. Um, And it's particularly useful for an intervention question, a therapy question. But I'm going to show you that we can think about other types of questions using the same structure. Sometimes we're just interested in the outcome itself. What's important to patients? And this I'd call a, a PO question mark question. We don't know what the outcomes are that are important to patients. Let me give you one specific example of this. Patient with rheumatoid arthritis. What do you think the most important symptom or problem for a patient with rheumatoid arthritis is? Pain. pain. Okay, that's number two. Function. Sorry? Function. Function, yep. Number three. Cosmetics. Cosmetics, Cosmetics, deformity. I think that's about number five, yep. Anyone know what number one is? Stiffness, pain? Stiffness, pain? No, that's probably number four, I think. Going to the loo. Going to the loo. Probably number six or seven. <laughs> Amanda, as a patient with rheumatoid arthritis, do you want to tell us what number one is? Exhaustion, tiredness. Fatigue, yes. And the way... This is now part of the measures that they use in rheumatoid arthritis, but it actually took the rheumatologists a long time. There's a group called OMERACT, which has been trying to standardise the measures that they use for clinical trials of rheumatoid arthritis. And I think it was in their third or fourth meeting that they decided to include patients. And the patients said, oh, your tools are great, but they leave out our worst symptom, our biggest problem. And they said, what's that? And they said, fatigue, exhaustion. And I went, oh, my goodness. They then did a survey of patients to find out the frequency of that problem. And indeed, the patients were right. It was the number one problem. So the second type of question you might have is about the prevalence or incidence. You need to know what the phenomena are first. And often that's qualitative research. You need to find out what's going on. Then you can start to quantify it. So we could have asked, what's the prevalence of fatigue, pain, dysfunction, etc., in patients with rheumatoid arthritis? Either as a snapshot, what's it like it now? That's a prevalence snapshot. Or incidence, how does it develop over time? So they're both PO type questions. Um... Prevalence being just a a simple PO and the incidence one, you add the T of the PICO. Okay, so we might ask the question, how common is an earlobe crease? Has anyone got an earlobe crease? Can you just check your neighbour to see if they've got one? (laughs) It shows you a picture of one here. Normal earlobe, earlobe crease. Okay, they actually increase with age. They've been said to be a risk factor for cardiovascular disease but actually the confounder here is age that they just become more common with age and of course cardiovascular disease does as well. (coughs) So it's a potential confounder so it's sorting out that as a risk factor we need to know this prevalence by age as well. Okay Okay the next type of question is a PICO question and here we've got the IC in. So I wanted to emphasise that not all questions have all four elements of the PICO in them. They can just be simple PO questions or even the PO question mark ones. Next type is a risk factor. Do patients with rheumatoid arthritis have a higher mortality? How do we tell that? How would you know with a risk rheumatoid arthritis patients? What study would you do to do that? Okay. okay, can you, not, not using the word cohort, can you just describe what you'd actually do? Follow up the patient from the time of the diagnosis and see how many of those patients die. Compared Compare to another group. Compared to another group. Okay, so the patient group would be patients with the initial diagnosis, that's the inception cohort, of rheumatoid arthritis, would be the indicator here. Versus a group that don't have that, no rheumatoid arthritis, and we'd have to argue about what the appropriate controls are, and the outcome would be? More death, mortality, death. Okay. No randomization involved in that, by the way, because here we're just interested in the natural history. Do they have a higher mortality rate if you've got rheumatoid arthritis? If they did, we could start to say, what's the causation of that? Think about that. But the first thing we want to know is, is this true? Do they have a higher mortality? So that's a, a prognostic factor. Treatment might be, do patients with rheumatoid arthritis benefit from methotrexate? So what's the population? Rheumatoid arthritis. What's the intervention? Comparator. No methotrexate in the outcome. Pain. And fatigue. <laughs> yes. Fatigue, dysfunction, all of those things that we said, we want to measure all of them. Which things does it actually change? It may reduce pain but not change the incidence of the fatigue, the the flu-like episodes that patients get. And that would be of interest to patients. Okay, and so it's the same structure, but here we'd probably like to have a randomized trial as our best evidence. Patients randomized to methotrexate or no methotrexate. Okay. So one important message there is the best evidence will depend upon the type of question. If we're just interested in the phenomena, what do patients with rheumatoid arthritis experience? What troubles them? What outcomes are they interested in? That's qualitative research. We sit down with a bunch of people and ask them. Okay, if we want to know the frequency of that problem, then we want to get a sample of patients with the condition and ask them about them, and preferably a representative sample. The way of getting that is usually a random sample. I didn't talk about this one, but this is also a PICO structure. Um, Does the person have the problem? How do we diagnose rheumatoid arthritis? And we could look at CRP or other new techniques of diagnosing rheumatoid arthritis and compare that with a gold standard. That's a PICO structure as well. The prognosis, we said that's a follow-up or inception cohort, the mortality from rheumatoid arthritis. And finally, we want to fix the problem, and this is probably our most common question in practice, by the way when people have kept logbooks or looked at questions sent in to services, about 70% of our questions actually turn out to be about therapy, which is why there's a special emphasis in um, evidence-based medicine on randomised trials. But for all these others, you don't need randomised trials. In fact, they wouldn't be as good at answering the question. For this, the randomised trial is the ideal thing. Which is why we have these hierarchies of evidence the one that you mostly see is for treatment, where randomised trial is the so-called level two evidence, right? But if we're talking about prognosis, the level two evidence would actually be an inception cohort. A randomised trial may not be as good because of the selection process into it. You'll get a limited number of people in. With an inception cohort, you usually get a broader representation of folks, so it's actually a better thing to use. And randomized trials would be under inception cohort. as a lesser thing for prognosis. And diagnosis, you need a simple cross-sectional study. Okay, and the ideal thing, the level 1 evidence for all of those would be a systematic review of whatever the level 2 evidence is. Systematic review of inception cohorts for rheumatoid arthritis mortality, etc. So it's important. One thing you'll start to notice when you look at levels of evidence... People fail to mention that when they're talking about that, they're really talking only about treatment. It's an important misconception. Okay, this afternoon you'll look about, find out how to filter down to those things using PubMed and a special thing called PubMed Clinical Queries. Who's used PubMed Clinical Queries? About a third of you, that's great. One of the special features is that it has you can click on diagnosis, therapy, prognosis, etc. There are a number of categories here, uh, so that when you search, you get some filters that will filter down to the randomised trials for therapy, the inception cohorts for prognosis, etc. And they filter by about an order of magnitude, so it makes your searching much much easier to use those filters. But remember, you've got to use the right filter depending on the question that you're asking. Again, that's a table of the filters developed by Brian Haynes by using what the filtering process that we use for the EBM journal to try and find out what the most sensitive and specific um, filter terms would be. And you can see they're quite complex on the right-hand side there. The best filters for each of those types of article. You don't have to type in anything. All you have to do is click on a little button and it types everything for you. It's really nice of it. Okay. I just wanted to finish by saying there are other hierarchies of evidence. There are lots of different levels of evidence that you'll see. The grade group is trying to standardise this whole process of the levels of evidence. But other ones are the levels of evidence for anecdote-based medicine. For example, level one's a beardy old gent from the Royal College. Level two is a doctor with an air of credibility and honest face. I can see several around here. (laughs) I'm only level three, (laughs) academic with a mad stare. And level four is an NHS manager with their trust in financial crisis is the least reliable thing. (laughs) Okay, where to now? Um, You need to find out your rooms because we're now going to break up into small groups before we go for coffee. So just make sure you can work out where your room is. And I might get the tutors to stand up